Marriage uh, can can evoke a lot of different ideas for people. Some think first of of the wedding ceremony and and that day uh, of celebration. Others think first perhaps of of buying a house and a, and a minivan uh, and settling down. R- regardless of how we consider it first, though, in terms of our first ideas, marriage is at rock bottom about communion. It is God's appointed institution for joining two people's lives together in the most intimate link between creatures. And our last study in Genesis looked at how God's Trinitarian communion reverberated into creation as he made humanity in his image. And they had need for communion as creatures as well. God's intra-Trinitarian conversation about creating His image brought forth His image bearers who were not good on their own but needed to be male and female as fitting partners for fellowship to carry God's likeness into the world. God's creation of humanity in His image therefore has that general aspect that we discussed last week That we need to be in creaturely communion together as those who represent the God who eternally dwells in inherent communion as Father, Son, and Spirit. Further, though, God's creating humanity has a specific aspect that our need for communion has pointed application in marriage. In Genesis 2, 18-25, Scripture highlights how God designed man and woman for marriage in order to address that need that the man should not be alone. So the main point today is that marriage is meant for communion and points us to the communion we have with God in Christ. Marriage is meant for communion. And points us to the communion we have with God in Christ. Now our first point for thinking about this, this main idea is portraying communion, portraying communion. So although, although the, the creation narrative uh, entails many truths about marriage, certainly it does, this point now focuses on how God appointed marriage primarily to address that issue of communion. As we saw previously, God's command to Adam uh, in verses 15 to 17 was a covenant, offering incorruptible life to Adam for his obedience. And following directly upon making that covenant with Adam, God then observed in verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So just as as God entered communion by covenant with Adam, so too he would create a partner for creaturely communion with Adam, fit for the covenant of marriage. Now strikingly, in this passage, Adam was not alone in an absolute sense. Since, uh, since God had already previously, before 
this event, in starting in verse 18, God had already previously formed the animals. And Adam had a relationship with them. It is perhaps odd that God observed that it's not good for man to be alone, and then brings the animals to him. The, through that series of events, though, the narrative builds suspense as we watch Adam learn that none of the animals were suitable as his partner. And the point was to show Adam that he needed a fitting helper who did not yet exist. So we gather why the animals were not fit partners for Adam from the relationship between them and humanity in in verses 19 and 20. In back in Genesis 1:28, uh, if you want to flip there, or if you can remember when we discussed that, God declared that Adam was to have dominion over the fish of, of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern context, naming naming something entailed authority. Right? God had named. Parts of the creation, right? Day and night, he had named them. Land and sea, he named them. And so God throughout remains the supreme ruler, even as he brought animals to Adam. His bringing them to Adam also marks his supreme authority. Still, Adam imitated God. And God's authority that was granted to the, to the man as a, as a vice regent under the maker by naming the animals. The problem was that as he had this authority over all of them, in that regard, he had no proper helper for his task of bearing the divine image in covenant with God. It's notable That God's act in verses 15 to 20 of covenanting with with Adam to order their communion directly preceded creating the woman for Adam to have the covenant of marriage. Hence, Adam's rejoiced that he no longer looked for help among the animals, but had found finally the bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. This was the partner fit for creaturely communion with him in covenant. And the communion by covenant that God entered with man was to be mirrored with an intimate relationship between creatures. God formed the two sexes, male and female, to mirror the communion of God with his image. Just as God and humanity are different and distinct, they have to be, yet humanity has a fitting likeness and correspondence to God so that they have the most intimate communion between God and creatures. So also, man and woman are distinct and different sexes yet have a fitting likeness and correspondence to one another so that they can have the most intimate of communion 
among creatures. The immutable difference between men and women therefore reflects how humanity is different from God, yet is meant for wonderful relationship with Him. Marriage is the joining of two others, two distinct people, man and woman, and is the fitting analogy of our relationship with God in that God and humanity are immutably and fundamentally different, yet made for relationship. In that respect as well, marriage between man and woman joined as distinct sexes in one communion, so a union of others models how God, who is distinct and different from us, makes communion with us. It's vital to marriage, then, that the parties be different from one another, else it is not properly illustrative of the communion with God that it was meant to reflect. Everything about humanity was crafted for communion with God. And marriage was wired, was designed for portraying communion with God. That communion with God. That brings us to our second point, practicing communion. So the the first point was meant to, to demonstrate that marriage is the creaturely communion that pointedly portrays the communion that humanity was designed to have with God. And that theological reality is visible and valuable to everyone. Right? As proper and healthy marriages should portray vital communion as we can have with God, and we see that and benefit from that regardless of whether we are married or not. This, this general value of marriage then also determines though aspects of our sexual ethics. So first, in our passage, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, biblically, that that humanity holistically would, would never have made clothes if if we had not sinned. I, I know that that's kind of an assumption we have, but I'm not sure that that's true. Since since we are to be dressed in fine white robes in the new creation. If in the new creation we have clothes where we will not be sinners, uh, then clothing is not inherently connected to the idea of sin. We've seen that seasonal changes were happening. We may have needed uh, clothes for warmth, something like that. But the point, the point, is it seems uh, that shameless nudity belonged by creation in the marital context. Either way, we we know that because of sin, Adam and Eve were ashamed, even when only the two of them were present, and so made clothes for themselves. But marriage is that context where we should not be ashamed of our sexuality. And, and that point also hints 
at why sex outside of marriage is sinful. The reason is grounded in our role as God's image bearers and how God brought us forth from within that intra-Trinitarian conversation. Right? We've, we've talked uh, in previous sermons about how the Ten Commandments describe God's character. They aren't a list of rules that God made up. They are a reflection of who God is. And the Seventh Commandment for, forbids adultery because God is faithful to those whom He has formal communion with them. God did not make communion with bears and badgers, but with Adam and Eve. He spoke only to them. After the fall, God grants His communion only to believers, and not to those who do not belong to His people. So, as God's image bearers, we grant the most intimate of communion only within the formal covenant of marriage, just like God grants His most intimate communion only to those in formal covenant with Him as well. Second, though, we saw last week how how the communion uh, of God's inter-Trinitarian conversation let us us make man in our image brought forth a creature fit for communion with God and for creaturely communion. And so so God's self-deliberation of inter-Trinitarian communion in order to create humanity, makes clear that the communion is then the setting for reproduction. Our triune God confers communally about creating humanity in an unbreakable bond, creating humanity in the divine image, which signals that that unbreakable communion and replication and those two things joined together are marks of God's character. Communion is then part of what it means to be God, since our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so too, communion should belong to what it means to be God's image. So, God's image bearers reproduce and use the sexual intimacy that results in reproduction only within the confines of special communion in marriage. There are, though, so we've we've seen how this idea of marriage as communion shapes pointed aspects of our our sexual ethics, uh, and that's generally uh, applicable. But we have some important considerations also for directly for married people as well. And most pointedly, if marriage is meant to portray the communion that we have with God, then are we conducting our marriages in a way that demonstrates lives of communion together? Sometimes we can turn our marriages into contracts, reciprocal relationships simply by which we get what we want from the relationship, uh, perhaps even at the expense 
of the other person. That's not how we should be as Christians in marriage. We should not be negligent, absent, overbearing, or nagging. We should not even focus on our own interests. But we should focus our efforts in marriage, not on getting the things we like out of this, but on fermenting communion. In this light, God formed the woman from the man's rib to be Adam's fitting partner in covenant. Matthew Henry famously commented on this passage, not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And in this way, the text says that God made a helper for the man. But helper signifies how this woman would make an essential and needed contribution to the man's life. Something that he would cherish. It does not signal her inferiority or her her inadequacy. Sixteen of the nineteen uses of the word helper in the Old Testament refer to God in relationship to us. And further, the New Testament refers to the Holy Spirit as our helper. Certainly, as we all need to admit, we are not superior to God. So helper does not denote inferiority in the creation of the woman. Although the scripture is clear that the man is supposed to be the leader in his individual household, that does not mean that every woman is supposed to submit to every man in society, as some have misunderstood this passage to imply. Since God is our helper does not mean that God submits to us, As humanity, certainly, or as his people, so too then does scripture not mean that women as women submit to men in the general task of bearing God's image together. More pointedly for how we conduct our marriages, Adam does something striking upon meeting his wife. So in in verse 23, Adam says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Now, it's hard to see this in in English, uh, but, but the Hebrew uses different words here for man than in other parts of the story. So, So the narrative early on had named Adam in relationship to the ground. The words are similar. Which as a gardener, the ground was Adam's job. So Adam is made from the Adamah. But Adam here renamed himself in relation to his wife. The Ish in relationship to the Isha. 
And that's pointed because whereas the narrative has named Adam in relationship to his job, at least by wordplay, Adam defines himself in relationship to his wife. Men especially, right? How often do we invert that and define ourselves by our work rather than by our relationship with our wife? Do you think of yourself foremost by connection to the task that God has given to you or by the communion that God has granted to you in marriage? Let me remind each of us that it is easy to let our relationships begin to focus on the jobs we have, the houses where we live, the activities in in which we engage, the way we do this and that. There are many distractions that can invade our marriages. Let me exhort you to remember that your marriage is about communion. Just because work is draining does not mean that time at home is for tuning out and vegging on television, letting ourselves unwind, or that we have ever done our part in the relationship and can tick the box on our contribution for the day, the week, or ever. Marriage is about communion. Practicing, we should live like it, right? If marriage is about communion, we've got to live that. Practicing communion means involving our full selves continually in the relationship of marriage. So we come to our final point, prioritizing communion. We saw how God created humanity, male and female, for communion. And the marriage relationship is a portrayal of the communion that we are meant to have with God and saw how the purpose of communion has some direct ethical bearing on our lives regardless of whether we are married. And, yeah. Verse 24 then makes a programmatic statement about marriage based on the fittingness of the woman for the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. As we've considered already, it is in light of this bond that they were naked and unashamed together. More fundamentally though, this verse shows that the bond of marriage takes precedent over biological family relationships. Although, certainly, we maintain our loving commitment to parents and relatives, still, our marriage relocates us from from a primary connection to those relationships to a priority on the marriage relationship. It's a relocation. Godly parents will remain continual fonts of, of wisdom, 
certainly, but you cannot allow, you cannot allow, and it's easy to do, cannot allow your biological links to create any division in your marriage or have any dominance over it. And the same actually applies for our children as well. We love our children, undoubtedly. But your marriage is the bedrock of the family. A married couple is a family apart from children. And so, because of that, children need to see the strength of that foundation as a priority in any family. Just like identity is shaped by our marital communion over our work, as we've just seen, so too our identity is shaped by our marital communion over and before our role as parents. Not in contrast to, but over and before. And the theological reason for this priority on the marriage is because the scripture very plainly states that marriage depicts Christ's relationship to his church. Just like marriage relocates you from the primary link to your biological family into that covenantal bond, so to faith in Christ relocates you from the natural link to the world into that covenantal bond with the Savior. Just like personal communion in marriage takes priority uh, in order to enable raising children well, so too our personal communion with Christ takes priority in order to enable us to disciple others well in our families and among our friends. Marriage takes two people who were once separated and and joins them together in communion by covenant. In that case, we pray as two people wisely learn to find one another and come together. And that demonstrates how we, in fact, were once separated from Christ and yet brought together with Him by faith into an indissoluble covenant. And still, further on, Christ is the Savior who is the most rich and faithful husband. And yet, had to pursue us as we preferred the refuse of the world. In our state of sin, we preferred the one night stands with our our wretched desires more than we wanted the unbridled and faithful love of God which is offered to us now in Jesus Christ. But Christ, the faithful husband to his church, came and died for every sin of every believer so that he might 
cleanse us and make us holy to to present us without spot or blemish on the last day at his return when we will celebrate right the wedding feast of the lamb and celebrate the consummate communion of Christ and his people it's not good for man to be alone and so so marriage is good but our marriage to Christ as his church is best regardless of your marital status in Christ we are never alone and have the very communion for which we were created union with our God as Adam leaped for joy to claim Eve as his bride Christ for the joy set before him endured the cross to claim us as his bride. The depth of communion we see in faithful marriages was forged into creation in order to point us to the communion we have with God in Christ. Every joy that is displayed for us, all, for all of us in marriage, as hard as it is to fathom, is dwarfed by the overwhelming love and communion that we have with our Maker because of Jesus Christ. And so, as we come to the end of this series on Genesis 1 and 2, we find ourselves ending where we began. We began by reflecting on how this text, more than anything else it addresses, it it directs itself at God's people that we might consider our relationship with Him. These texts, more than they tell us about the mechanics of the universe, they tell us about our relationship to our God. And here we come full circle. This text tells us so much about our relationship with God as it ends on the point of the man and the woman joined in marriage. It points us to Christ, the bridegroom, who came and won citizenship in heaven that he might have us as his bride fit for everlasting communion with him. We can have that if we would take hold of him by faith. As we look at the world around us and know that there are weeks of loneliness and isolation perhaps ahead of us, we ask ourselves this, are we alone? Not if we have Christ. If you feel alone and and don't have Christ, well, consider that. Because eternity, everlasting life in condemnation separated from our God, will be infinitely lonely. But if you would come to Christ, if you have Christ as Savior, everything that awaits before you is full of communion, love, and joy that we have in the work 
and in the welcome that we have from Christ as we take hold of him by faith. Let's pray. Father God, we are indeed glad that we can consider these texts together. We are glad that they address us, that Genesis 1 and 2 addresses us about our relationship with you. And we are certainly glad that as we consider what it would tell us about marriage, we know that it points us to the communion we have with Christ. By your grace, you have taken sinners, you have given your Son for us. While we were your enemies, Christ died for the ungodly, that he might have us as his bride and present us as spotless before you. We pray, God, that we would be captivated by that communion that we have with you as it is even described in the first chapters of your word. And we pray, though, also that knowledge of that communion would shape how we live, would shape how we live in terms of our relationship to the outside world, certainly, and the ethical standards by which we conduct ourselves, but even then within our families. Help the fact that we are the bride of Christ and the the intimate communion that we have with our maker because of the Lord Jesus in a marriage bond. Help that to shape the way that we think about our marriages. And that we would pursue communion. That it would help us to mortify sin. Put the old man to death. And live more and more unto righteousness. We pray that you would use... Uh, these these words of your scripture and our reflections on it to build up your people, to encourage them for the week ahead. We come to the end now of, of this time when we uh, hopefully are encouraged by your word and are sent into the world. We pray that we would be able to speak together on Zoom tonight and that that would be a blessing to us. But we pray that as we've reflected upon your word, that it would be beneficial to us, that it would prepare us for the things in store in the days ahead, and that we would know you more deeply because of it. We do pray your help in in that and in all the things you would give us to do, and we pray that for Christ's sake. Amen.